You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what the Lord, God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Don't tell me what, but can anyone put their hands up? I'm not going to ask you if you can see what might have spoken to me. Uh, my wife does, because she's seen the um, notes of the sermon, so that's not... Uh... Okay, well, let's just see how it goes. I'm not going to tell you what it is till we get to it, but this psalm, Psalm 85, uh, uh, has uh, 12 verses to it, but verses are a... Um, a, a, a relatively modern uh, uh, intrusion on the original text. And the original text has four stanzas, which conveniently are either of two, three, or four verses. And so we're going to go through those four stanzas together and to see what God has to say to us, what fed me and what hopefully will feed you. And the first stanza is verses one to three, and they deal with the past. Now, just think for a moment. We'll look through those verses in a moment. How do you view the past? Is it with nostalgia? Do you remember the good bits and wish that the good bits that are past are still present with us instead of what we've got? Do you mourn the past because it's no longer with us? Some people will actually be very glad that the past has gone but I would say that uh, out of 100 people, more than 50 would regret the things that have gone from their past. Maybe their health, uh, maybe a relationship, maybe a prospect of what is to come and comparing it with how good things apparently seemed in the past. Well, you'll see that the psalmist, the sons of Korah, had a mournful view of the past. Verses 1 to 3. You, Lord, showed favour to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. These verses recall the good old days. There's something mournful about those memories, the halcyon days of the past when 
when the nation felt favored, blessed, free from guilt and regret. Oh, for the old days. Now, mind you, we have to bear in mind that there may be some rose-tinted spectacles here by the sons of Korah. If you think about the history of Israel up to the point where the Psalms were, were uh, um, sung, um, there was hardly a passage of time uh, since the formation of Israel where there were some problems going on, whether it was in captivity, whether it was uh, uh, in the wilderness, uh, whether it was fighting with the, um, uh, the tribes uh, that surrounded uh, Israel. So there may be some rose-tinted spectacles. They'd filtered out the bad bits and they just remembered the good bits. And I think that may well be true for many of us. We think back to the past and if we were living in the past, we wouldn't realize we were living in the good old days. We'd then be going one stage back, hoping uh, that things would be like they were um, before. Uh, but that's... Uh, that's by the by. They may not have considered they were living the dream uh, that people are dreaming about now. Now, not everyone looks at the present and compares it unfavorably with the past, but many do. And today, quite honestly, it's very easy to see why we would only wish to turn the clocks back. There is so much happening in this world which seems more dire than it appeared to 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Global warming, the climate crisis is with us now. We recognize how our world is uh, really on the edge. Suppression of freedom on an industrial scale. Hardly a month goes by without some story of some country or other where truth is suppressed and people's freedom to express themselves is limited. Intolerance of, dis of difference. Remember the days when you could have a difference with somebody and yet you were still one together. And now if you have a different point of view, you no longer have anything in common with the people on the other side. Truth so easily manipulated Unbelievable that in the last six months we discover that people can be rewriting history and others believe it and follow it as if it were the truth. Inequality is not shrinking, but it's growing. And the rich are obscenely rich and the poor have little hope for the future. Injustice increasingly unchecked. It's not difficult to long for the good old days. And here's the alarming thing. It's not other people that are causing this grim world. Because what we see happening on a national or international scale finds its roots in us. We can't say it's them out there and if they only they changed, then things would be different. Because the selfishness that we see in nations the wish to oppress other people has its roots in us. That's part of our basic makeup as of our fallen nature. The shortest letter ever published in the Times was written by the writer G.K. Chesterton. It was part of a series of correspondence 
about the trouble with the world today. And people were writing in, identifying things that needed to be changed if the world was going to make a better uh, uh, shape of it. And G.K. Chesterton wrote, Dear Sir, I am yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton, or read another way, the trouble with the world, dear sir, I am yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. He recognized that the trouble with the world found its roots in him. And as we look at the present day, are there signs of a better future coming? Is the Middle East more likely to live together in harmony? Is global warming likely to be reversed? Is international terrorism on the decline and finding its comeuppance? Is consensus in politics uh, that which uh, seems to be stronger or weaker? Is there hope? And if there is hope, where does it come from? So that's stanza one, the past. Let's move to stanza two, which is the plea. You'll get the idea of peas coming uh, strongly today. The plea, verses four to seven. Let's have another look at this. Restore us again, God our Saviour, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. So here we come to those words that resonated with me. I don't know if you got that right, but will you not revive us? Will you not restore us again? Now, just as an aside, I... I have to admit to some, un, some discomfort about the way in which the psalmist uh, expresses the dilemma that they're facing at the moment uh, in terms of God's anger being visited upon people because they didn't obey the rules. And that seems to me very hard to square with a God of love who actually wants us to come back to him and to live by his standards. And I think we have to understand this passage in the context of the New Testament where Paul describes the consequences of going wrong, not as God beating us down uh, with some sort of sadistic pleasure, but of God respecting our right as his creation to make our own choices. And his anger, if it's to be described that way, is expressed in us having the consequences of the decisions that we make. God gave them up to their ways, as he says in Romans chapter 2. But that's by the by. The plea for restoration and revival works at a number of levels. It's very clear that this was a psalm which was written uh, for uh, communal singing. It was for the whole people of Israel. So it's not simply a personal request, but the plea for revival and restoration works at the, both a global level, so praying for our creation to be restored and revived. It works also at our national level. May our nation be restored to what it was, not what it was in the good old days, but back further from that, the nation 
that God created in order to be what he wanted it to be. And it works in our church as well. Revive the church, Lord. And the reason for that is that the church provides that salt in society which can change society as well. But it works also personally for you and for me. And it's at that level that this scripture spoke to me. Will you not revive me again? Will you not restore me again? There's a sense in which um, I identify with the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 2 where John talks uh, on behalf of the Lord to the various churches. And it says the church of Laodicea was hardworking, it was persevering, it was doing the right thing, but it was also losing its first love. And that's how I feel. Know that I'm doing the right thing, I'm following the right things, but is the relationship there, is that first love there? No, it isn't. So uh, that's why the verse makes, uh, means so much to me. And it's a very fresh, rich, wholesome concept to restore like an old neglected building. It's had the builders in. It's now back what it was meant to be right at the beginning. The idea of revival, like a wilting plant that's been fed and watered and nurtured and it's back how it's meant to be, vibrant and alive and not just on its last legs. So we've looked at the past and regretted that it's not how it was meant to be. We've looked at the plea which is asking for God to revive us and to restore us again. And now we come to the third stanza, verses 8 and 9. The plan. Because I want a deep-rooted, a living relationship. I want to be restored and revived and not just carry on doing the old things I've done because I know they're the right things to do. And verses 8 and 9 give us a clue about how we might achieve this. I will listen to what the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. It's uh, uh, sadly true that there's no simple formula for being restored and revived. We don't do A and B and C follows. People who pray for revival are often disappointed, even though they're doing all the right things. Revival is God's sovereign choice, and we can't force him into it. But there are steps that I can take and that you can take that clear the way for him to restore me. And if you have that hunger like I have to be revived and to be restored, here are some things that we can do that can make the possibility better without telling God he's got no option but to revive us. The first is to ask for it. Revive us, restore us. 
says the psalmist. And if I don't ask for him to intervene, he won't do so. He respects the freedom of choice that he's given me. If I'm content with how things are with me, nothing will change. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And there's a sort of uh, uh, a, a tension between God calling us to peace and be contented and also to be discontented, to long for more things, but to long for the things that he wants to give us, not for the things that we think will make us contented. It's what... Uh, People call divine discontent. And if I don't ask for it, God's not going to force it on me. So I've taken to praying, just simply revive me, restore me, several times a day. I don't do anything more than that. It's almost like a mantra. And I believe that God will respond to that, even if at the moment I'm not feeling like it. Revive me, restore me, please. That gives God the permission to do what he wants to do. So ask for it. Look out for it. The psalmist says, I will listen to what the Lord will say. If I don't create space to hear from God, why would he waste his breath speaking to me? The psalm didn't appear out of the sky it came as part of my daily time set aside for listening to God. And if I don't set aside time, if I don't stop talking and um, projecting, but just to listen to God, then how can he speak to me? So make time to read the word expectantly. Ask for it, look out for it, and live in readiness for it. He promises peace to his people, the psalmist says, but let them not return to folly. What does folly look like? Well, folly could be consciously being disobedient to what we know God wants us to do. It can be a conscious decision that we're going to go our own way. But I suspect that most people consciously doing that sort of thing is a very rare occasion. It may happen, but it's not the norm. So when we come to confession, what do we confess? Well, we confess the things that we haven't done in the light. But actually, confession may be of more subtle ways in which we follow the way of folly. Because it can include ignoring the inner voice, the voice that tells me to step out in faith. It can be just going for the easy life and letting things carry on because that's the way things are always carried on. It can be playing it safe because no one's going to uh, wag the finger at you for just doing the ordinary thing. I love the confession which uh, Sophie led us in. It can be undervaluing ourselves criticizing ourselves, disempowering ourselves because that's how we think the world really is. And when we do that, uh, then that folly of a different kind 
reduces the prospect of God being able to revive us and to restore us. Okay, have you got the three P's? The past, the plea, the plan. We come to the last three verses with the prospect. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth. And righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. So here we have a picture of a pretty well perfect world. A world characterized by love, by faithfulness, by peace and justice. These are not the sorts of words that we would use to describe our world today, are they? Probably just the opposite. But they are possible. And they are much more than simply returning to the good old days. They are going back to not what we were, but what God intended us to be. They're a description of Eden, of that perfect world where there was no fear, where there was understanding of one another where there was enjoyment and these are things which God created us for and we believe they are possible verse 7 talks about showing us your unfailing love O Lord unfailing is covenant love that's what it literally uh, means God has made a covenant with us he did it with Abraham he did it with Jesus he does it with us now it's a promise, a, an unbreakable promise. It's his faithfulness and it can happen. And it's our job as Christians to tell the world that there is hope, that the world need not go in the way it appears to be going. And we not only tell them that, but we live it out. And the consequences of the cross are then made real in our world for it's the cross that makes it possible and making it possible in people's experience that they can understand comes when I start to be restored and revived and when that happens to a congregation then that helps the community and when the community is revived and restored then the nation has hope and when the nation has hope the world has hope That's it. The plea, the, the, the past, the plea, the plan, the prospect. And it's all possible through Jesus. So let's just uh, have some prayer now.